Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, John, things got underway in Sacramento this week in a big way as legislators scrambled to meet the deadline to file legislation. John, I don't know if you knew this, but each legislator is allowed to file 50 bills over the two-year term of the session. And in the Senate, it's about 40 bills. Wow. Multiply that by what? 80 and 40, right? So what we're ending up with is thousands of bills and sorting through which ones have a chance of getting through. And which ones should get through. Exactly. And which ones don't is quite a challenge and actually kind of impossible right now. One of the key issues to watch will be to track the progress of early childhood issues, which Governor Newsom has made a top priority of his legislative agenda. This week, we'll talk with one of Newsom's top advisors on early education. Also this week, Linda Darling-Hammond was selected to be president of the State Board of Education, succeeding Mike Kirst, who served as president for the last eight years. And charter school teachers and many of their supporters rallied at the state capitol as part of their annual conference at a very difficult time for the charter school movement in the state, at least on a legislative level. We'll save until next week a discussion about what happens when super wealthy parents, many of them in California, resort to bribes and other criminal activity to get their kids into the nation's most selective colleges, including Stanford, UCLA, and USC. We'll also talk about a survey out this week from education researchers at UCLA. As we follow social media, watch polarized politics in Washington and our combustible president, more and more people are wondering about the impact this climate of incivility may have on schools and on students. A survey by UCLA researchers of high school principals across the nation found plenty of cause for worry. I spoke with the primary author, UCLA professor John Rogers, about the findings. But first, this week, as some of you listening will recall, about two years ago, Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon set up a commission on early childhood. It's called the Blue Ribbon Commission on Early Childhood Education. And this week, it finally came out with its report. And interestingly, it does coincide with a big push by Governor Newsom, who is making early childhood his major priority. So it seems like there's likely to be some synergy between what Governor Newsom is proposing and what this commission has come up with. We're happy to have Zadie Stavely, our early education reporter, here in the studio with us. Zadie, you plowed through that report, which made a lot of recommendations. I'm not going to ask you to tell us about all of them. But what were some of the things that this commission came up with that caught your eye? Well, you're right, Lewis. It's 84 pages long, so I can't tell you all of the recommendations. But it comes up with long-term goals for 10 years down the line and then short-term goals. So, for example, a long-term goal for California, according to this report, is that families with low incomes or average incomes, incomes lower than the state median income, would pay no more than 7% of their income on childcare. And right now, that's not happening. Right now, many low-income and middle-income families spend 20, 30, 40% of their income on early childhood education. Did the commission give any clue about how the state could get it down to about 7%? Well, they, they started with a short-term goal of making sure that all low-income families with less than 70% of the state median income would get access to subsidized child care. So that's a big deal because that's not happening now. Only a fraction of children who are eligible get subsidized child care. And then they said in the midterm, they'd like to increase that to all families that have less than 85% of the income and then eventually get up to this place where 
everyone under the state median income would get some kind of access to subsidized care, either um, completely free childcare or a sliding scale. And they also talked about how to engage parents so they get access to the services that are available now. They did. Now, one of the most interesting and exciting things about this report is that they have a bunch of recommendations that came from parents themselves. They had focus groups throughout the state with parents who have had experience with subsidized childcare, and those parents told them what is wrong with the system right now and what they think needs to happen. And so they included many of those opinions and perspectives in their report. One of those ideas that came from parents is that prenatal doctors would talk with mothers and fathers about the child care options from the time that they're pregnant. They talked about advertisements in multiple languages in places like hospitals, buses, places where lots of people are going to see them. Okay, this all sounds hugely ambitious. You talked with Speaker Rendon about how practical some of these recommendations actually are. What did he have to say? So he said he understands it's a big, ambitious set of proposals, and that's what he wanted. He said this stuff is meant to be phased in, and the way we look at it is to make sure we serve those families who have the greatest need first. So he talked a lot about equity and making sure that the lowest income families would get the care that they need first, and then moving up to get more and more. In the hearing on Monday when they released this report, the commission admitted that they don't have a clear idea of where the money would come from yet, and that in their final report in April, they do plan on having a more robust set of plans for where the funding would come from and how to finance all these ideas. Governor Newsom has put some practical proposals on the table. How much of an overlap is there between the commission that Speaker Rendon set up and what Governor Newsom is proposing? There's a lot of overlap. I would say every proposal that came out of Governor Newsom's office is in the report. One of the interesting things is that Governor Newsom has appointed Giannina Perez to be his senior policy advisor for early childhood. As far as we know, that's the first time a governor has appointed somebody in his office to focus on that issue. A clear indication of the priority the governor is placing on that. Yeah, and I caught up with Janina Perez at a conference about immigration recently, and I asked her, how does it feel to be in this position? I am extremely humbled and extremely excited and extremely nervous and extremely just overjoyed about this possibility. I think it says a lot that this governor wants to have folks from different voices, from different uh, perspectives. This is the first time that 50% of his staff are people of color, 60% are women. It doesn't just stop there, though. You know, he has, he has put in place many of us who are advocates or former advocates because he knows that he wants to have folks who have a connection to communities. Because for many of us, it is important. I need to hear from folks. I need to hear from parents. I need to hear from Spanish-speaking parents and other parents where I'm the one putting the translator equipment on and listening to them. I have to say, as a child advocate for 12 years, I never thought that I would be in this position. I have had the fortune of working for uh, elected officials in the legislature, but I thought my role now is going to be in the advocacy world. It's really not about me. It's about like, I'm gonna do all that I can because I'm here, because I'm representing my community, because my mom and dad immigrated from from Peru for a reason, is so that I can do my part to help make things better for, for more kids. Like my own little kid, you know, every single kid deserves to have what what the governor's children have, and he's made that commitment. And so I'm here to help roll up my sleeves and help make that happen. I know there's so much to do. What is the first priority for Governor Newsom's agenda? 
The priority is all of it. So when the governor laid out his early childhood vision in the budget, I think it was monumental in the fact that it was early childhood, which means prenatal up to kindergarten entry because he recognizes that each and every component is important to a child's overall health and well-being. And what I think is most exciting is that he's taking a holistic whole child approach, but he's also looking at a two-generation approach as well, investments in parents, because we want to invest in parents so that they can invest more in their children. I also asked Perez if the governor is planning on expanding funding for child care for children zero to three years old, which is a huge need in California. She indicated that not for now. In this first year of the budget, the the marching orders that I have are to help pass this budget because it's so monumental, because it's laying out this vision, because the governor wants to also have longer-term conversations about the way we're providing services. So, for example, there is money to expand universal preschool for every single low-income four-year-old, and he's made a down payment this year, and then for the next two years made the promise that he'll get there. So he he's talking about universal coverage for every eligible four-year-old. Then he's also saying, let's talk about the larger system. So we know subsidized childcare, there are a number of needs there. So his proposal is an investment in a master plan for early childhood education. That's the blueprint, $10 million there, to have these conversations. He really wants to step back before we start investing additional dollars into our system to say, how do we create a more coordinated, comprehensive, family-friendly system that will we know will support children's overall development, but of course support families learning and, and earning more. Ultimately, these thornier questions of how are we going to pay for it, because as the governor has said in his budget, there needs to be a conversation about the state's investment, but also the private sector's investment, as well as those families that can afford it, what is their investment? Since we're here today at this symposium about mental health of immigrant children, we know that half of them have at least one immigrant parent. We know that 60% of kids under five speak another language other than English at home. Are we doing enough for them in the early years? We will do more for them in the early years, and that's why I'm so excited and humbled to be put in this position, and I'm so excited and humbled to have folks like Gina De Silva, who is on immigration, and others who care about these issues, who want to do right, and we're committed together to, to doing more. Okay, one last question. On the panel, you said, um, I can early childhood any issue. Yeah. What, what does that mean? <laughs> That means I am such a diehard early childhood advocate that you throw out an issue and I'll early childhood it. So I like to play this game when someone's like, water issues. I'm like, water is crucial to the overall health of every person, but particularly because children's brains are developing at the most rapid rate between birth to five, water is crucial to their overall health and development. Thank you so much. Muchas gracias. Thank you. That was Giannina Perez, who is Governor Newsom's Senior Policy Advisor for Early Childhood. I think that was the first time she's talked publicly about these issues since she was appointed. When we come back, we'll talk about the climate of incivility that we have been experiencing in Washington and in the media and in social media and the impact it's having on our schools and the headaches it's giving principals.
This week, UCLA's Institute for Democracy, Education, and Access, known as IDEA, released a fascinating report, School and Society in the Age of Trump. And as you can infer from the provocative title, schools are encountering problems with incivility and intolerance that are compounding the normal level of anxiety in high school. Researchers interviewed 505 high school principals nationwide in the summer of 2018. I spoke with the main author, John Rogers. He's a professor at UCLA's Graduate School of Education, and I asked him what stood out among the findings. There definitely is a heightened sense of incivility and division in many schools across the United States. More than 80% of principals talked about this as a, as a severe issue that's affecting their schools. Um, many principals talked about getting pressure from community members to teach this way or that way and not really knowing how to respond. Many, many principals talked about contentiousness and battles within their school amongst different groups of students. I was struck by the fact that a number of principals advocated greater neutrality at their school. And I think that in some sense they were doing so because they were increasingly worried about these pressures coming in in ways that might undercut the possibility for those schools engaging in civic education and building the democratic capacity of their students. So how much of this is attributable to Donald Trump as president? Is Trump the cause of some of these issues or is he sort of like the chili pepper on the stew? The level of political division and hyper-partisanship has been growing over the last 25 years. So these are issues that preceded the presidency of Donald Trump and will continue to be issues after Trump is no longer president. And yet, the president himself has played a role in increasing the, the harshness of the rhetoric, the political rhetoric that plays out, and in some instances, pushing forward policies that create either a heightened sense of division or a heightened vulnerability on the part of certain communities. One of the findings in the study is that almost 8 in 10 principals report they've disciplined students for uncivil behavior towards other students in the past year. Now, you didn't do a survey before. Do you, do you get a sense that it's either a larger number of incidents or a different type of behavior? Principals talked about a, a different sense of dynamic, a different tone. Um, one principal in particular talked about the fact that in the past, when students have engaged in hateful behavior, she's been able to talk with them and elicit a certain sense of shame that then leads to change. And that ability to evoke a sense of concern on the part of students has eroded in the last couple of years, she points out. And when she has called parents to tell the, the parents that their children have engaged in hateful behavior, sometimes the parents back their children up. And I think that some of the dynamics in a broader political environment have emboldened young people and their parents to act in ways that no longer promote the sense of civil engagement that we want to see in our public schools and in our public settings writ large. Now, I'm assuming this doesn't apply just to Trump supporters, but it's just the environment that is polarizing in itself. I think that that's right. We see from principals stories of students from all sides of the political divide heightening their political rhetoric. Some of the issues that have emerged um, that, that elicit vulnerability on the part of certain students are ones related to hatred toward ethnic groups, towards immigrant groups. And I think those 
stories primarily were stories about students who were either Trump supporters or students who were echoing some of the rhetoric of the president. Well, that gets to one of the areas that you asked about, which was the impact on immigration and the stress and fear among students and families. That's exactly right. About 60% of the principals report that students had made derogatory remarks toward immigrants. I was really struck by the fact that we see a real difference amongst principals in whether or not they articulated to their student bodies the importance of tolerance towards immigrant students. Principals in predominantly white high schools reported that that problems with hateful comments towards immigrants were most common, yet those same principals were the least likely to report that they had articulated to their students the importance of tolerance towards immigrant students. One of the recommendations that you made, right, dealt with providing schools with sort of standards and then practices that they can cope with this? That's exactly right. I think that there's been some positive moves, John, in the last few years towards thinking about school climate. Social emotional learning has has risen and gained more prominence within policy circles. I think our report, though, highlights the importance of attending specifically to issues of hatred, issues of political division, and helping faculties both document cases that are problematic, report on those, but then have professional development so that educators really have the capacity to be responsive to these issues in meaningful ways. I think one of the issues it raises, John, is that we assume that schools are the places that students go to learn how to reason and learn how to read the media to separate truth from uh, lies and, and distortions. And yet, I guess the message we're getting here is how hard that is in an era when there is such incivility and a, basically a lack of trust over facts. Toward the end of the report, we invoke John Dewey, who talks about schools projecting into society a set of democratic norms. And I think at this moment, what we're seeing is some social ills of society being cast into our public schools and making it more challenging for public schools to do the important public work of enhancing our democracy. John, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, John. That was John Rogers, an education professor at UCLA and director of UCLA's Institute for Democracy, Education, and Access. You can find a link to the report on our website, edsource.org podcast. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and our own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.